Well, good morning once again, and it's great to see you all here for our sermon series called What the World Needs as we look forward to Jesus' coming again and look back at when Jesus came the first time at Christmas. So I want you to imagine it's Christmas Eve. Your family, you're sitting around the Christmas tree, and it's that time to start opening up presents. And you see a present with your name on it. Your name, and it gets put in your hands. And you unwrap it, and here's what it is. A brand new scale. Look at that. How cool would that be? You get a brand new scale. And then after that, you have another present. It's wrapped nicely, has your name on it, and you open it up. You can tell it's, it's kind of shaped like a book. You feel like it might be a book. Overcoming selfishness. Ten tips to reduce your selfishness. Uh, these were the two gifts my wife gave me last year, so, you know, just, just kidding. Not true. But how would you react um, if you were given these two gifts? Gee, thanks. Thanks for letting me know that not only am I fat, but I'm also obnoxious. Thank you for letting me know that. Um, it'd, it'd be tough to get gifts like that, right? Your family might say, but these are the gifts you need. You need to know this. You need to overcome your selfishness. But it still kind of hurts to have those things pointed out to you, even though there's something that you need. And that's what we've been talking about, what the world needs. I'm not talking about your weight. I'm not talking about some selfish habits that you have. Today we need to talk about our sin. Today we need to talk about things in our lives, things that we do wrong, things that hurt our faith. And there are times in your life where you need to have that pointed out to you. And it's not fun, is it? It's not fun when someone points out something in your life, but sometimes that's exactly what you need. So that's what we need. We're going to look at today. We're going to look at how we need to have our sin pointed out to us, but we're also going to talk about how we need comfort. They go hand in hand. We need to know of our sin, but we also need to know our Savior. We need to know what we do wrong, but we also need to know how God loves us. So that's what we're going to be looking at today for what the world needs. We need a look in the mirror. We need to see our sin, but we also need comfort. So we go to the book of Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the opening lines in this book of Isaiah chapter 40 is this idea that we need to prepare a way for the Lord. Build a road for the Lord. And as we saw um, in the previous verse, um, every valley, every low place needs to be raised up. Every mountain needs to be made low. Every rough place needs to become level. Every rugged place a plain. And this is all just a, an easy way of saying that we need to get ready for the Lord to come. Just like how in the Old Testament people, they prepared uh, for people to get ready for Christmas way back in the day. And still today, we need to get ready for Jesus to come back again. Because we understand that there's, there's road imagery here. If there's a crooked road, make it straight. We understand that God is not saying, you guys all need to become construction workers and build the road for me. We get that. That's not what he's getting at here. But instead, uh, we understand that this is about preparing our hearts for the Lord. And if you were paying close attention, uh, the very first lesson we read, uh, it was quoted again in our gospel lesson uh, by a guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he's kind of a fan favorite in the Bible. He's the one that ate locusts, 
grasshoppers. He wore camel's hair. He lived out in the desert. Um, like I said, you know, a lot of people remember John the Baptist for those things. But he was the messenger, the guy who was supposed to get people ready for Jesus. And if I could sum up all of John the Baptist's message with one word, it'd be this word. Repent. He says you need to prepare the road for the Lord. You need to get ready for the Lord. And what's he saying there? He says you need to repent. You need to get ready for Jesus to come. You need to see the sin in your own heart. And you need to be comforted with the gospel. So what do you think of when you think of repentance? Do you think of someone like that? When I say the word repent, do you think doom and gloom? I think lots of times we think of like being sad, having sorrow in our hearts, having sorrow for the things that are going wrong. Maybe you think fire and brimstone. Maybe, maybe you think that way. You think of all the bad things. You think of the negative effects. And yes, that, that's part of repent, repentance. That's uh, Part of repentance is having these sorrowful feelings for our sin in our heart. But that's not the full picture. If you think that this picture is the only thing with, with repentance, um, we're going to get ourselves into lots of biblical errors. So we're going to pick this out. So today I want to go through the steps of repentance. I'm on uh, page 6 of your bulletin. Um, I have three steps for you and some squares. And if you're the type of person that likes to doodle and you have a pen, uh, we're going to be drawing some pictures today. So I invite you, open your bulletins, you get to draw some pictures. If you have a pen and like to do that kind of thing. If you don't, if you just want to pay attention, that's fine with me too. But here we go. Step number one. Contrition. And I want you to draw a sad face with an arrow pointing up. So the first step of repentance is contrition. And I get it, I'm using another church word. Contrition is just a fancy word that means sorrow over sin. But, who are you sorrow over your sin about? You're sorry towards God. Because so often when we do something wrong, we feel bad afterwards, but you might not feel bad that you sinned against God. Let me give you an example of this. Let's pretend that you're driving 20 miles over the speed limit on the highway and you get pulled over by a cop. And you get a big $300 ticket. And afterwards, you feel bad about it. But what do you actually feel bad about? Do you feel bad that you got caught? Do you feel bad that that sneaky cop was hiding in the bushes with that gun and you feel bad that he got you? Are you upset because you have to pay a ticket? Do you see how that you feel bad, but that's not contrition. That's not sorrow towards God. True sorrow towards God in that situation would be understanding that you sinned against God's government. You sinned, you did something wrong, you put other people's lives at risk, and you did something bad that was sinning against God. So that's what contrition is. It's understanding that it's not just that guilty feeling you have, but it's a guilty feeling that you have when you understand that you first and foremost sinned against the Lord. Step number one. Step number two, my favorite step, it's the cross. Draw a heart and put a cross in the center of it. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Step number one, recognizing that we have sinned. Step number two, knowing that you are forgiven. Knowing that you are forgiven in Jesus' name. Knowing that Jesus died for you. Knowing that you have comfort that gives comfort to your heart. That's the second step. That's first and foremost why we come to church. We come to church not so I can say, hey, you guys have done bad. Yes, we need that at times. 
But the reason you come to church is so that you can hear that your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name and to have the comfort of the forgiveness of sins that we have. That's the comfort that we have. That's step number two of repentance, knowing first and foremost that our sins are forgiven. Yes, we have sins. We need to have them pointed out. But one of the most important steps is knowing that Jesus died for us. He forgives us of every terrible thing that we've ever done wrong. And finally, step number three, change. Change. Draw a tree with some big, juicy apples on it. Sound good? A tree with some big, juicy apples on it. Um, In the Bible, uh, change in your heart is described as, they call it, fruits of repentance. Uh, Fruits of repentance is how you know that you sinned, you know that you did something, or you did something wrong, you know that Jesus forgives you, and now the Bible tells you to change. Uh, so when some people came to John the Baptist, he told them to repent, and then he had people coming up to him, he had some thieves come up to him, and he said, well, what should we do? And you know what John told them? Well, if you're a thief, stop stealing. Your sins are forgiven, you did something wrong, your sins are forgiven, now, stop stealing. And he had some uh, Roman soldiers come up to him who were kind of bullies, and they would like shake people down for money, that kind of stuff. And they came to John and said, well, what should we do? And he said, stop shaking down people for money. Stop being a bully. That's what he told the Roman soldiers. Like, yes, you've sinned. Yes, you're forgiven. And now the third step is for you to change. John wanted fruits of repentance. And I love, I love that picture of fruits of repentance. Uh, because have any of you ever seen like an apple tree and uh, the apple tree was like, I gotta make some apples, and then like an apple grew. It doesn't work like that, right? Apple trees just produce apples. That's what happens. And as a Christian, as a Christian, when your heart has been changed by Jesus Christ, you're just gonna start living differently. You are gonna automatically do good things. You are automatically gonna start following God's word. Not saying there are going to be times where you wander away. Not saying there are going to be times where you don't go back to your sins again. But as Jesus changes and shapes your heart, you're kind of going to just start living differently. You're going to produce fruit. If apple trees produce apples, Christians produce good fruits. That's what happens. So those are the steps of repentance. Step one, contrition, sorrow over your sin towards God. Step two, the cross, the comfort side of things, knowing that our sins are forgiven. And then step number three is change. That's the proper steps of repentance. That's what the Bible teaches. But I wonder if some of you grew up with a model that looked more like this. Step number one, feel bad. Step number two, change. And the comfort is robbed for not having that change, or for not having that comfort. And maybe you, uh, you grew up with something like this. Maybe you went to a church. You grew up in a church that said, feel bad over your sin. Now try hard and do better. Maybe this is how you parent your children. You hit your brother. Feel bad. Now, try harder. Change. And all talk of forgiveness, all talk of comfort is robbed away. Can you see the danger in this model? Can you see the danger in this model that if you take away the comfort that we give from people, that if you don't tell them that their sins are forgiven, maybe this is what you tell yourself. You committed that sin that you said, I'm never going to do it again. And then you do it again. And then you feel bad. And you tell God, I feel bad, God. I'm going to try so much harder next time. And you rob all words of comfort that God has for you. So often that's the model of repentance we go towards. To feel bad and try harder. 
But that's not what God tells us. That's not what God tells us. And this is a trap that we need to be aware of. This is a trap. Uh, we're working through the book of Isaiah, and this is a trap that the people of Isaiah, they faced. Um, there's a section of history out there. They call it countercultural history. Countercultural history, meaning it doesn't happen, but people kind of say, what if, what if this happens? And they write all these big books about if, what if this one thing in history changed? So there are books out there written like, well, what if uh, Pearl Harbor never happened? What if Abraham Lincoln never uh, got assassinated? What if JFK never got assassinated? And they come up with like all these theories of what would happen in history if just one event changed. I want to play that game with you th- this morning. So I want you to think back uh, to 9-11, the terrible terrorist attack where planes came and uh, flew into buildings in New York City. Terrible event, right? But after 9-11, I want you to imagine that there was a 9-12 Well, more terrorist attacks came, but this time not to New York City. They came to Los Angeles and destroyed more buildings there. And what if there was a 913 where they took out more major cities? They went to Orlando and Cincinnati and Memphis and Nashville. And then there was a 914 in Minneapolis and Detroit and Milwaukee. And then there was a 916 and just attacking more and more major cities to the point where we were being conquered by another nation And all of a sudden, houses were being emptied by people with machine guns. And they were loading your family members into trucks and putting you in boats or planes and flying you across the ocean to a Middle Eastern desert. And now you're looking around at each other. So many people you know have died. And now you're stuck in a desert. And the worst part about it all, it was your fault. You were responsible for it. it. wasn't the president's fault. It wasn't the military's fault. You were the person on guard. You were the person that should have seen this coming, but you missed it. It was your sin. It was your mistake that made this terrible thing happen. If you can wrap your mind around that situation, then you can start to imagine what Isaiah was going through. During the time of Isaiah, terrible things have happened. The nation of Israel was split in two. There was another powerful empire called the Assyrians. They took over, and they took Israel, and they dragged them into exile. They were living in deserts that they weren't familiar with. And the worst part of all, it was their fault. They had been disobeying God for so many years. Because of their disobedience, because of their sin, God said, I'm going to allow you to be conquered. I'm going to allow you to be drugged into exile. And so, for so many years, they looked around at each other, they thought about all the lives that had lost, and they found out, and they looked at their own hearts, and they realized it was their fault. It was their sin. Can you imagine the guilt that they must have had? The guilt that they must have had, that they were in exile now, and it was their fault, and the sin that they had. They were operating with that second model of repentance where they felt bad, they didn't have any words of comfort, and they said, we're going to try harder, we're going to try and get better, but it wasn't working. And through the first half of the book of Isaiah, they had to add their sin point out. For 39 chapters, there's pages and pages in the book of Isaiah about judgment and what you did wrong. And they needed to see that. They needed to know that they were responsible for their sin. But as we look at the second half of Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 40 You want to see what the first verse is? Comfort, comfort, 
My people, says your God. God comes to his people and says, comfort, comfort. He says it twice. It's like, extra, extra, read all about it. It's to get their attention. Comfort, comfort. For so many years of hearing about sin and judgment, God has words for them about comfort. And he says, you are my people and your God. Even the pronouns, my and your God, uh, show comfort. A couple months ago now, uh, this is a while ago, um, it was an early morning. I was sitting on the couch working. My wife was in bed, and uh, my baby kept waking up and going back to sleep. So, like, my wife would get up, she'd try and uh, put the baby back to sleep, and then she'd try and go to get some more rest, and then 20 minutes later, Ava would be up again crying. That kind of thing was going on. And uh, I heard Ava crying, and that's when, from my wife's bedroom, I got this text message. Come get your kid. <laughs> Come get your kid. Uh, last time I checked, it's a two-person job, right? You know, you can't, can't just say your kid. Um, but what does that mean there? What does that mean? It means my wife was sick of our kid, and now it was my turn, right? Come get your kid. And uh, for so often in the book of Isaiah, God over and over again said, this people, this nation. Not my people, not my nation, but this nation. What's it mean? It means God's sick of his children. God is sick of his children and their sin. But look at again now. Look again now at the pronouns. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. The relationship was strained for so many years. For so many years, they were apart from one another because of their sin. But now God has words of comfort. He says, you are my people, and you are, and I am your God. He's showing that the relationship is together again. It shows that they are close to one another again. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. God has words for Isaiah. He wants them to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And he wants Isaiah basically to do what you guys do on Christmas morning as parents. On Christmas morning, when you wake up your children and say, guess what day it is? It's the day you've been waiting for for so long. You've been waiting for this day. And that's what Isaiah's job is, to tell his people that you've been waiting for this day for so long. We've dealt with our sin. We've dealt with our judgment. But today's the day we've been waiting for, the day of comfort. The day our hard service, the day our punishment is now over. That's what Isaiah gets to tell his people. And maybe the best line of all, he gets to tell Israel that her sin has been paid for. Israel had done so many terrible things, just like you and I do, but their sin has been paid for. And Israel might look back at their dark past and see all the bad things they've done and think, God can never forgive me. But God speaks words of comfort. He speaks words of comfort to them. And you can look at your past. You can look at your history. You can think about all the gross and terrible things that you've done. But God has words of comfort. God has words of comfort that your sins have been paid for, too. So let's look again at the steps of repentance. I want to remind you, don't take out step number two. Remember the cross. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what he did as a baby, how he came to this world so he could give you comfort. 
That's what Jesus did. He came here to die on a cross so that you can have words of comfort. So that you can know that your dark past is forgiven. So you can know that there are sins that you're committing now are forgiven. That you can have words of comfort. Uh, I'm reading a devotional book right now. It's called God is in the Manger, and it's by a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Very German name, right? He's a Ger- he was a German pastor that lived during the time of World War II. And what was really cool about him was that he was a pastor, and then for a while, he stopped being a pastor because he got involved with plans to assassinate Hitler. How cool is that? You're a pastor, and then you're working to assassinate Hitler. How cool is that? Um, anyways, that's what he did. Uh, but the plans didn't work, and he got caught, and he got thrown in jail. And from his jail cell, it's almost Christmas time, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents, but now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. It's easy for us at Christmas time to get all caught up in buying presents, getting the tree set up, going to your 15 different Christmas parties you have to go to. It's a busy time of the year, I understand that. But don't let those things distract you from the real gift. Don't let those things distract you from the gift that God gives us. Because when you have nothing, that's the only gift you have. Coming from a man who sat in a prison cell, he knew his gift. He knew his gift was what Christ did by coming to this earth on Christmas. And that's the same gift that we have. That's the same comfort that we have. And that's what this world needs. This world needs comfort. Because you know people who have guilt in their hearts. You yourself need this comfort. It's the comfort that Isaiah told his people. It's the comfort that John the Baptist told his people. And it's the comfort that I get to share with you today. That Jesus came to this world to give us comfort. To tell us that our hard service is over. To tell us that our sins have been paid for. So enjoy that comfort that you have, knowing the best gift of all, that Jesus came to die for us and to take away all of our sins. We do this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I now invite you to please stand. Uh, We will continue our worship service on page 6 with the Apostles' Creed.